Christ for good works, which you have prepared beforehand that we may walk in them. Lord, I thank you for that reminder. I thank you for that truth that you have intentionally created each of us. You've molded and, and developed us into who you say that we are, just as we sang. But you've done that so that we can walk in the good works that you've prepared beforehand. So Lord, I pray that you would um, enlighten us this morning with your word, that you would show us in your word how you have developed us, how you've molded us, how you've created us, so that we can be faithful to the good works that you've called us to. Pray that in Christ's name. Amen. You guys can go ahead and have a seat for me. Well, good morning. Hey, well, Acts chapter 9 this morning, that's where we're going to be. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up with me to Acts chapter 9. Last week I told you I was overly caffeinated and yelled at you for 40 minutes, okay? I'm going to try to be a bit more succinct. I'm appropriately caffeinated this morning. Um, but Acts chapter 9 is where we're going to be. As you turn there, let me, let me share this. So in 2 Kings chapter 2, Elijah, probably the greatest prophet in the history of Israel, was about to be taken to heaven, okay? In a blink of an eye, he's going to be teleported back to heaven. But his, his protege, protege, Elisha, had one final request of him. So if you remember, Elisha came to Elijah and said, I want a double portion of the spirit that is upon you, right? That's the request that Elisha made. He, he looked at his, his successor, I mean, his, his master, his teacher, and said, I want a double portion. of Whatever God has given you, I want a double portion of that. It indicates a succession in his ministry, but also a desire for his ministry to be double the influence or double the size of his predecessor. Um, as I was exploring a public calling or a vocational calling into ministry, I heard the following story. Um, man, it just meant a lot to me, and I, and I, think, it, I think it will mean a lot to you too. A, a very famous minister of the gospel, um, someone who had a, a huge following, someone that was really used and gifted by God um, to, to move the kingdom of God forward, was, was teaching a particular conference. And at the end of this conference, God had moved in a powerful way, people who were responding to the gospel. And uh, a young man at the very end of this conference came up to him to introduce himself to this ministry. He introduced himself and he said, sir, I, I want to be used of God. I, I feel called into ministry. I, I, want, I want to be used. I want to advance God's kingdom. Will you pray for me? And specifically, this young man said, I want you to pray that a double portion of whatever God has given you would, would, would be mine. The older man said, no way. You, you don't know what you're asking for. You have no idea what you're requesting. There's no way I'm going to pray that for you. And the young man insisted. Sir, I, I want to be used of God. I want to be used powerfully in the ministry. I want to make, make God famous, right? I, I want these good works that God's prepared beforehand to, to be faithful to him. Will you pray that a double portion of the spirit God's given you would be on me? The man once again rejected, said, no, you, you don't understand what you're asking for. Third time's a charm, he insisted. Kept pressing, kept pushing in for that request, to which the old man finally, exasperated, lays his hand on this young minister and prays this, Father, I pray that you would give him a double portion of the sufferings to which you've given me. Richard Foster wrote an amazing book, highly recommended. It's called Celebration of Discipline. He writes in the introduction of that book, superficiality is the curse of our age. The doctrine of instant satisfaction is primarily a spiritual problem. He said the great need today is not for a greater number of intelligent people or a greater number of gifted people, but a greater number of deep people. That story of this young man, it, it really does summarize, I think, a, a lot of our attitudes in the spiritual life. Like, we want it instantaneously, don't we? We, we want it to be microwaved. We, we just want it to be easy. We want it to be simple. We want it to be quick. But, y'all, what we're going to see in Scripture today is that, that God doesn't work that way. 
The way that God develops his people is over time. He prepares us over time. You see, Saul, who we're going to be looking at once again, Saul of Tarsus, he was made a disciple in a moment, right? He was made a disciple on the Damascus Road as soon as Jesus reveals himself. But what we're going to see in today's passage is that he was prepared. He was made deep in the desert. He was set apart instantaneously, but shown how much he has to suffer over time. We saw that last week, right? Given a commission, given a calling, given a ministry on the spot. But again, he had to be primed and prepared over the course of his life. So church, this morning, that's what I want for you. Truly, I I really yearn for myself, for us collectively to, to be a deep people, to be a people that give ourselves to the process of preparation. We all know the expansive and impactful ministry of the Apostle Paul. Right? We, we're, we're probably familiar with that, but unfortunately, we're largely ignorant to the process of what God had done in Paul's life. So that's what we're going to be preaching on this morning. How does God prepare Paul? And I want to give four insights into maybe how God's preparing you as well. Okay, so Acts chapter 9, verse 19 is where we're going to pick up. For some days... He was with the disciples at Damascus. This is Paul. He had just been converted. He had just been given a ministry. Verse 20, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, The Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him, brought him to the apostles, and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Christ. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. And here's a concluding summary of this kind of, this chapter, not just chapter nine, but the chapter in the church history of Acts. It says, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So I made, made this mention last week. We, we see the conversion and the commissioning of Saul three times in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 9, 22, and 26. And when you take the, the three renditions of his calling, we can kind of summarize his calling as this. He would be a witness of Christ, primarily to the Gentile people, and he will suffer greatly for it. Right? He will suffer greatly for it. And in Acts chapter 9, verse 20, we see Paul immediately launching into that calling. He steps straight into that commission. Look again, verse 20. Immediately he proclaims Jesus in the synagogues. But what we need to see throughout the remaining of this chapter is that as the story progresses, Paul needs greater preparation. Paul's going to need some greater preparation. So how does God prepare Paul to fulfill such a purpose? And how might he be preparing you for the good works he's created for you that you could walk in? All right, point number one. I'm going to stay with my alliteration this week, okay? Point number one is sovereign. Sovereign foundation. God prepares his people by laying sovereign foundations. Robert Clinton, a longtime seminary professor at Fuller Seminary, writes this. God sovereignly and providentially works to lay the foundations of someone's life. 
God in his sovereignty lays foundations for your life. Things like the family that you were born into, right? You didn't choose that. The birth order that you have, whether you're the oldest, the youngest, the middle, none of that was chosen by you. The location that you were born in, right? Whether it was in Richmond Hill or Savannah or India, wherever you were born, that's sovereign foundation. Your temperament, right? Your, your personality, some of your giftings. Like you didn't choose those things. They were given to you by God. Those are all foundations that God lays by in sovereignty. So let's look at Paul's in this passage. And as we saw last week, a, a little bit about his character study. Paul's family was part of his sovereign foundations, right? We know that from Paul's own words, he was born into a Jewish family, which means his initial love and familiarity with the Old Testament scriptures was just due to the fact he was born Jewish. What he saw in his parents impacted him for the remainder of his life. You with me? His Jewish heritage was part of his sovereign foundation. But we also know that his parents were Roman citizens. Consequently, Paul himself was a Roman citizen. And because of his Roman citizen, what we're gonna, citizenship, what we're going to see all throughout the book of Acts is that he was granted access to various cities throughout the Roman Empire to plant churches, all because of his citizenship. Did he choose that? No. All of that was given to him in these sovereign foundations. Family is part of God's sovereign foundations. But so is location, right? Where we are born, where we are raised. Saul was born of Tarsus. He talks about Tarsus as being of no obscure city. This was a big city, heavily populated, important city, situated on the trade route between Egypt and Mesopotamia. But what's important for Saul's ministry is that Tarsus was a Gentile city. It was not a part of Israel. It was not a part of Judea. It was a Gentile city. So J Paul, being a Jew in Tarsus, made him a religious minority. Growing up as a child, he would have witnessed, physically seen, idol worship. So it surprises us none when he gets to Corinthians and he begins condemning idolatry because he's seen it. He's seen its impact. Tarsus was also a, a university city. It's, it's pretty famous. It attracted the greatest Greek philosophers of the day. Saul probably would have been familiar with Greek philosophy, and we see that all throughout his writings. In fact, let me just tell you this. He, he quotes various Greek philosophers. Menander in 1 Corinthians 15. Epimendes, I think I'm saying that right, Titus 1. Roman philosopher Lucius Seneca in Acts chapter 17. A lot of his writings even reflect Plato and Aristotle. That's all because of these sovereign foundations, right? He was just grown up in a city that would know these Greek philosophers. Location plays a part in sovereign foundations. Tarsus had a big role in who Saul became to be. But we learned last week as well that Saul was born in Tarsus, but where was he raised? Jerusalem. Saul was raised in Jerusalem. More than anything else, it was his learning in Jerusalem, specifically at the feet of who? Gamaliel. It was his learning at the feet of Gamaliel that, that really began to form who he was. His understanding of the Jewish religious creed, his deep knowledge of the Old Testament scripture, that permeates his ministry. Right? When we see him writing these epistles all throughout the New Testament, that understanding of the Old Testament text permeates his ministry. But he didn't choose any of that. That was all chosen for him by sovereign foundations. Let, let me show you how this impacts him. Acts chapter 9, verse 22. Remember, Saul had immediately launched into preaching in the synagogues. And it says, but Saul increased all the more in strength. And he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Right, these Jews in Damascus, you know, they were confused because they had heard how this man who had formerly persecuted people in the name of Christ is now preaching the name of Christ. And it goes on, he says, he kept growing in strength and confounding his audience by proving. 
That Greek word is symbibazo. I don't know if you wanted to know that or not, okay, but it's here for you. Greek word symbibazo, that means to join or to put together. It's this reference that, he, that he's, he's proving, he's, he's confounding these Jews by putting together all of these Old Testament texts. He's, he has his knowledge, right, of his sovereign foundations of the Old Testament knowledge, uh, scriptures, and he's putting them together and joining them together in such a way that his audience knows Jesus is the fulfillment of those Old Testament texts. God used the location. God used his sovereign foundations for his purposes. Finally, I, I want to say a quick word about his temperament or his personality. What did we say last week? That, that, that Saul was zealous, right? That word means passionate. He was a passionate person. And y'all, he didn't do away. God did not do away with Paul's passion once he was converted, right? He just redirected it. Saul's zeal as a Christian was greater than his zeal as a persecutor. God used his temperament, his personality. These are all sovereign foundations. So, so what does that mean for us, right? Church, what that means is, is that Saul's location, his family, his temperament, it, it played a massive role into who he was. And, and that's the same for you as well. God, in his sovereignty, has used every bit of that to make you who you are today. Church, the good and the bad, right? Some of you were born into families that, that are amazing, your parents are still together. Your father was present spiritually, emotionally. You were raised in a Christian home. You had an amazing childhood. Y'all, you don't need to apologize for that, right? Sometimes we feel in church like we just feel bad for that. Don't apologize for that. God has led you in that situation for a reason, okay? That is God's sovereign foundation. But church, so is the bad. Some of you had the exact opposite of the experience I just said. Grew up in situations that were horrifying, tragic, traumatized. And I want to clearly say that because God, in his sovereignty, will use that upbringing, it doesn't mean that that sin that was against you will, will go unpunished. Vengeance will be the Lord's. But as we've seen all throughout the book of Acts, God will still use it. God uses our sovereign foundations. And if you were born in, into a situation that was tragic, I, I just want to point you to the, to the character of Moses. How was Moses came into this world? Right? Born into a, a situation of, of infanticide, right? Like everyone was killing these Hebrew boys and they put him in a basket down the Nile as a last resort. So he goes into, to, he ends up getting raised by Pharaoh in Pharaoh's palace, which God uses as sovereign foundations to make him who he needs to be to release the people of Israel from Pharaoh's power. God always uses things. These are sovereign foundations. So here's what, what I want you to know. Do not spurn your origins. Actually, be, be aware of them. Be, be attentive to them. My encouragement this week would be to take some time and, and reflect on them. Ask the Lord, how have you used sovereign foundations to make me who I am today? How have you prepared me through my family, through my location, through my giftings, through my temperaments? How have you prepared me so that I may walk in the good works that you've prepared before me? Because he does. He does. Okay. So he uses our sovereign foundations. But church, we cannot rely on our origins or our natural giftedness to accomplish the purposes God has for you. Those things cannot be relied on by themselves. Saul's impressive origins, Saul's intellect, his, his giftedness, even combined with a dramatic testimony, still were not enough to accomplish what God needed. There were other purposes, a longer program of preparation that awaited him. So let's go back to our text. All right, this is where it's going to get confusing, so I hope I can communicate this clearly. He uses sovereign foundations, but secondly, he uses silence and solitude. 
Verse 22, Saul's increasing all the more in strength. He's confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus. He's proving that Jesus is the Christ. And then we read in verse 23, when many days had passed. All right, let's pause for a second. That's a pretty vague statement, right? When many days had passed. What is he talking about here? What's he referencing? To help us understand the timeline of Paul's life, we need to turn back to Galatians chapter 1, all right? So if you have your Bible, go ahead and flip with me to Galatians chapter 1. You're going to have Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, and Ephesians. I actually have this song that our kids sing in, their, in our head. Everybody's shaking. The parents are just shaking their head because kids come home singing. It's amazing, okay? But that's Galatians. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. We read some of this last week, but I'm going to continue it in verse 15. It says, but when he, Paul's writing. This is the Paul. He's writing. But when he, God, had set me apart before I was born. He called me by his grace. He was pleased to reveal his son to me in order, right, what, for what purpose? That I might preach him among the Gentiles. And I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Are you with me? Paul's saying, hey, after I got saved... I didn't go down to Jerusalem to meet with the other apostles. Instead, I went into Arabia. What we learn from Galatians is that he was in Arabia for about three years. Luke doesn't mention anything about this, and Luke's the author of the book of Acts. Some argue Luke must not have known about it. I tend to disagree. I, I think it's simply Luke excludes it because it's not part of his purpose in writing the book of Acts. Acts is written as a narrative to show us the growth of the church, the spread of the church. Paul, spending three years in Arabia, doesn't really help that purpose. I think Paul excludes that. But what matters for us this morning is to understand Paul's timeline. So I'm going to put it on the screen for us, okay? Actually, Matt's going to help me put it on the screen. What we need to see is that Paul was first at Damascus. I hope you can see that. In 33 AD, that's about the timeline when Paul was converted, he immediately begins to preach in the synagogue. But then what we know is from 33 to 35, Paul goes into the Arabian Desert. This is the surrounding desert countryside of Damascus. We have no, far, no idea how far he went into the Arabian Peninsula. All we know is that he was there and that he later returned to Damascus. That's about 36 AD. And after he's there in Damascus, he ends up going down to Jerusalem, which we're going to see here in our text, as well as in Galatians 1.18. All right, so there's a timeline a little bit of what Paul so let's center in here in Arabia. What happened in Arabia? Why would God drive Paul into the wilderness? Many argue that Paul went there to preach. He can't not preach, y'all. And I, I'm, I'm going to agree with you, and I'm going I'm to share with you how I think Paul was preaching out in Arabia. But I believe the primary purpose of Paul going into Arabia was for silence and solitude, for a season of preparation. Church, God prepares his people and seasons of silence and solitude. I mean, look at Moses. Moses was stirred by zeal, living in Pharaoh's palace, and murders someone where then the people of Israel end up rejecting him as their deliverer. So what does God do? He says, yeah, you got, you got it right. Your zeal to set these people free, I'm with you. You're just not ready. Your character isn't ready. So he drives him for 40 years into the wilderness. Joseph, dude, pretty gifted. What do you think? Let's talk about some sovereign foundations. He had some older brothers who didn't really like him too much. If you know the story of Joseph, he's a gifted dreamer. He's destined for greatness, but he was totally unprepared. So God allowed him to be sold into slavery only to rise to prominence in Egypt. Once again, elevated 
but once again, unprepared for the purposes of God. Church, let me just take a break and say, our, our character will always trump our giftings. They always will. Your character will expose your giftings. In our culture, in our society, your giftings will get you elevated, won't they? They'll get you promoted. They'll give you a platform. But oftentimes, our character and our faith is totally unprepared for that platform. We see it all the time. Don't make me reference how many church leaders fall time and time and time again. So we thrust people onto a platform where you raise them because of their giftedness. God gives you your giftedness, but he prepares your character through the times of wilderness. It's what he does. David, lonely shepherd, tending sheep all by himself. How does he use that time? Playing his harp, writing his psalms, drawing near to God because he had a heart that was after God. But as he's out there, God's also preparing him. He's, he's defending the sheep from bears and lions, which ends up giving him an opportunity to defend the people of Israel to this giant named Goliath. And as soon as they see a deliverer like that who cut off that giant said, what do we do? We elevate him. We begin to give him more opportunities. So he becomes a chief armor bearer to the king himself. But he wasn't ready. In God's book, David is not ready for the purposes that God has for David. So Saul, in his jealousy, tries to spear him to a wall. And David spends the next seven years in caves, in hiding in the wilderness. Let me keep going. Elijah. You can talk about Elijah. John the Baptist, prolonged season of isolation in the wilderness. Jesus Christ. Church, Jesus spent 18 years in total obscurity. We see Jesus at the age of 12 make an appearance in the temple, right? He's wowing the teachers and the Pharisees for his great wisdom. And then he disappears from history for 18 years. 18 years spent in obscurity. Then he begins his public ministry at the age of 30, only to spend the first 40 days of his public ministry where? In the wilderness. And then when you look at the life of Christ, he is constantly engaged in these rhythms of withdrawal, going to desolate places and praying, always slipping away. Church, this is how God cultivates his people. This is how God molds and develops his people. If you want to be deep, You've got to submit yourself to this process. So let's look at the Apostle Paul. He spends three years in the wilderness of Arabia. And he writes in Galatians 1, verse 12, he says, I did not receive the revelation of Christ from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ himself. The revelation of Christ that, that Paul had, y'all, it didn't come all at once. Right? He knew enough after he got saved in Acts 9. He knew enough about Jesus to immediately begin to preach him in the synagogues as the son of God. But it's going to take extended periods of time before Paul was able to cultivate the depth of his theology that we see in all of his epistles. In fact, let me just reference one experience that I really believe happened in this season. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul in his, quote, humility, talks in the third person about himself. He says, I know of a man who 14 years ago, when he's writing 2 Corinthians, 14 years would have placed him in this season. Three years out in the desert of Arabia. He says, and 14 years ago, this man was caught up to the third heaven. And this man was caught up into paradise, and he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. In this season of, of wilderness for Paul, he's having revelations and visions of Jesus Christ. Paul's deep and intimate knowledge of God, y'all, was cultivated in silence and solitude, cultivated in the wilderness. So what does that mean for us? E.M. Bounds' words in 1913, they're still true. He might have written them 100 years ago, but they're still true. Just listen to this quote. God's plan is to make much of the man, 
far more of him than of anything else. Men are God's message. The church is looking for better message, but God is looking for better men. What the church needs today is not more machinery or better, not new organizations or more and novel methods, but men whom the Holy Spirit can use. The Holy Spirit does not flow through methods, but through men. He does not come upon machinery, but on men. He does not anoint plans, but men. And that, you know that includes men and women as well. A.W. Tozer, one of my greatest authors, says a Christian is strong or weak based on how he has cultivated the knowledge of God. A Christian is strong or weak based on how he has cultivated the knowledge of God. Periods of silence and solitude or rhythms of withdrawal is how God does it. It, it is. If you feel like there's some depth lacking in your walk with God, submit yourself to this process. Now, you may be thinking, hey, I don't have 40 years to slip away or even three or even 40 days. Like it's even hard enough for you to slip away for an hour. That's okay. All right, that's okay. Let me, let me share with you about Jesus' lifestyle, how, how he built this into his daily rhythms. Luke chapter 5, verse 16. says, then Jesus would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Mark 1, verse 35, and rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Luke chapter 6, verse 12, in these days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. Rhythms built into his daily life where he's withdrawing to desolate places. So let me ask you, do you have a desolate place? Do you have a place in your mind that you can slip away to regularly so that you can seek the Lord? We see in the life of Christ that he often did it early, rising early, before everybody else was awake. Are you getting up early enough to spend time with God? Maybe you're like, no way, I'm not a morning person. Jesus spent all night with God communing and building an intimacy maybe it's at night the point is find your place find your time and build in some rhythms where you are seeking him and church i know the objection i, I know what you're feeling i feel it too we have four kids eight six four and two how is it possible sometimes it's just a shower sometimes it's just using the bathroom Sometimes it's just locking the door and stepping away for a minute. Sometimes it's the commute to work. Y'all, it doesn't have to be pretty and polished. It's intentional. Let it be intentional. Slip away. Spend some time with God. He'll prepare you. He'll develop depth in you. There are no microwaves. This is not instantaneous. This happens over time. So Saul spends three years in the desert of Arabia. But as with all seasons, this too comes to an end. We'll pick our text back up in verse 23. When many days had passed, so after this time in Arabia, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But the disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. This leads to our third point. God prepared Paul with suffering. God prepares his people with suffering. The Jews in Damascus were apparently tired of being confounded by this man of great intellect, this great gifting, and now, after his time in Arabia, his great depth. It wasn't long in Saul's public ministry that he began to lean into what Ananias told him. Hey, yeah, Jesus told me that um, you're going to have to learn how to suffer, right? Go back and look at verse, uh, chapter 9 in the conversion of Saul. That was the calling. He's going to have to learn how to suffer, and in this case... We have people spying him out day and night, waiting to kill him. I want to call our attention once again to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 
2 Corinthians 11, Paul, who's writing to the church in Corinth, described this specific occurrence. He says, at Damascus, the governor under King Aratus was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was lit down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands, right? You see the parallel experience. What's interesting about this was Damascus is a Roman colony. Paul, writing in Corinthians, says that it was a governor watching him under King Aratus. King Aratus was the king of Arabia. This is why I think Paul was also out in Arabia preaching. Because just wherever Paul goes, stuff stirs up, okay? So I can just picture Saul as he's leaving the Arabian desert. He starts stopping in these cities of, of, of Arabia. Begins to preach Christ, stirs them up, gets them all ruffled, continues into Damascus, keeps preaching Christ in Damascus, gets them all stirred up. So within the city of Damascus, the Jews want to kill him. They're spying him within the walls. And then the the Arabians are spying him out without the walls. The only way he can escape is being lit down in a basket through a window. And as we go through Acts, church, we're going to continue to study the sufferings of Paul. But for today, suffice it to say, suffering is always a means that he uses to develop his people always and i have like seven minutes and i know you're thinking why like why like that's the answer to the question right why would god use suffering aw tozer once again comes in and says it is doubtful whether god can bless a man or a woman greatly until he has hurt him deeply why Who better to answer that question than Paul himself? Romans chapter 5, verse 3. Paul says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. God utilizes suffering to produce endurance in you, to develop character in you, to produce hope in you. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, Paul says, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. Why? To make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who can raise the dead. 2 Corinthians 12, the Lord tells Paul, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Church, it is so easy, it's so easy to be tempted to rely on your origins, your temperaments, your giftings, your own intellect. God brings suffering into your life to make you rely not on yourself, but on God. To develop your character, to to make you more endurance-driven. To make sure we rest in God's power, not our own. Suffering always does that. Once we give ourselves to that process, right? George MacDonald, one of my favorite authors, says, No words can express how much our world owes to sorrow. I'll hear that. Most of the Psalms were conceived in a wilderness. Most of the New Testament was written from prison. The greatest word of God's scriptures have always passed through great trials. The greatest prophets have learned in suffering what they wrote in their books. So Christian, take comfort. When our God is about to make use of a person, he allows them to go through a crucible of fire. Always. God utilizes suffering to prepare his people. Let me speed up. But Paul, poor Paul, didn't just suffer at the hands of his persecutors. Look at verse 26. When Paul had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the church there. He tried to join the church in Jerusalem, but they were all afraid of him for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Persecuted in Damascus, now he's rejected by the church in Jerusalem. 
They had heard of this man, right? They knew who this man was. They thought he's faking it. He's faking his conversion. So if we bring him into our fellowship, he's going to know our names. He's going to know our addresses. He's going to kill us just like he used to. And that leads us to our last point. God prepares his people through the support of others. He always uses the support of others. Verse 27. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Christ. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Coleman is going to go deeper into a character study in the life of Barnabas soon. But church, what I want us to see is that Paul needed support. He needed an advocate. So here comes Barnabas, consistent with his character, and begins to testify to the leaders in Jerusalem. No, 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 I can vouch for this man. So the church in Jerusalem, seeing the credibility of Barnabas, accepts the credibility of Paul. And this is important. He didn't just receive support from Paul. Getting access to Peter and James gives him more support. Right? He spends 15 days. In Galatians 1, Paul tells us he spent 15 days with Peter and with James. That was, that was substantial for him. Because in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this. Jesus, after he resurrected from the dead, appeared to Peter. Then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. How would Paul have known that? Paul, Paul wasn't there when Jesus was resurrected. How would Paul have known that? Sitting with Peter and James and hearing first-eye testimony about the person of Christ, about the resurrection of Christ. That support builds into Paul's theology. It's incredibly important. God developed his people through the support of others. So let me conclude for us. Verse 29. And Paul continued to speak. He disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him too. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Saul prepared by sovereign foundations through silence and suffering, through solitude and through support of others, continues to pick up right where Stephen left off. Stephen was preaching to the Hellenists. Saul begins to preach to the Hellenists, and they try to kill him too. So the leaders in Jerusalem say, let's send him off. They send him to Tarsus. Hey, guys, quick fact here. He spends seven years in Tarsus. We don't see Saul back on the scene until Acts chapter 11 when Barnabas goes and takes him and says, come pastor the church in Antioch with us. Seven years of obscurity. We, we don't know what was going on in Saul's life. Seven years of obscurity. God prepares his people. A chosen instrument is what Paul was. God's workmanship, created for good works, prepared by God. But church, there is no microwave for this. The church doesn't need greater methods. It needs greater men and women. Men and women who are deep. Men and women who have cultivated a knowledge of God by submitting themselves to God's process of preparation. That preparation is, is, is sought by reflecting on your own origins. It's fought for and withdrawing for silence and solitude. It's forged in the crucibles of suffering and is developed through the support of others. And here's the conclusion of our chapter, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This season of church history began in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Acts chapter 8, verse 1 says, and Saul ravaged the church. Then it concludes here in verse 31, it says, now the church is walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit and multiplying. 
church being ravaged, but due to the conversion of its greatest persecutor, who has now become its greatest witness, we find the church at peace. Let me pray for us, and then we'll move into a time of response actually through communion. Father, we are deeply grateful for the process that you put us through as your people. But Lord, if we were honest, it hurts. It's hard. The reality is we want it to be easy. We want it to be quick. We want to be able to pop it into the microwave and just be who you've created us to be. But Lord, help us to see that the journey is much more beautiful and enjoyable than the destination. The process of walking with you is where life is found. It's where intimate, experiential knowledge of who you are is found. Father, our our world yearns for deep spiritual people. And I pray that our church, that each person here would do that. That you would help us, you'd prepare us, just as you did Paul, you'd prepare us to walk in the good works that you've created us for. And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're serving communion this morning, I encourage you to come on up and you guys can go ahead and start passing that out. Um, I'm gonna let the apostle Paul kind of lead us through a communion. Communion is a sacrament of the church. It's something that Jesus told us to do when we gather together. It's a time of remembering. And let me read from 1 Corinthians 11 as as you take of these elements. (coughs) Excuse me. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then Paul says this. As you partake in communion, he says you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. But church, listen, he gives, gives a warning too. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood. So he says, let a person then examine himself. So church, communion is for those who have put their faith in Christ. And before we partake of it, John's going to lead us through a a time of response. He's just going to play. And my encouragement for you this morning is examine yourself. Listen to the Apostle Paul and examine yourself. See if there's any sinful way in you and repent before the Lord before we take of this together. Go ahead and start playing for us, John.
us through a time taking communion. So once again, the Apostle Paul says, I received from the Lord what I've delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks for it, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Go ahead and take the bread. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Why don't you go ahead and stand with me, and I'll pray for us, and our team will come back up and lead us through one more song. Father, thank you so much for the privilege it is to be together with your children, brothers and sisters in Christ, standing together to proclaim the Lord's death. Thank you, Jesus, for drawing us close to the Father. Thank you for giving us access to relationship with the Father. Lord, I pray that we would be a church, that we'd be a people that wouldn't settle for superficiality, that we wouldn't hide behind any pretension, that, that we would hunger and thirst, and just as Paul was, be zealous for you. Lord, I pray that we would be attentive to the way that you're preparing us, the way that you're drawing us closer to you, the way you're drawing us deeper in you. And Lord, I pray for our people this morning that they wouldn't do it alone. We need the support of others. Pray that if there's confusion or doubt or questions on how you may be preparing them, how you may be developing them, that they would invite others in, knowing that we are called to do this together, not alone. So Lord, we thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. We pray that you would receive all the glory and the honor and the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.